This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim. Today, we're going to be interviewing Allie. How are you doing today, Allie? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. We were speaking before. We're both a little excited to do this, it sounds like. So let's mm-hmm. get started and dive in. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Um, I was born in uh, Nassau County in Long Island, New York. Oh, okay. I'm from New Jersey. Oh, that's nice. Not far. I'm from Westbury. Okay. Where's Westbury? This is Long Island? Like It's a... Uh... It's in Nassau County, as I said. It's like, uh, I guess, the northern part of the island. Okay. Like we also had a house in Mount Sinai, too. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah so not far from each other. No. So how was it growing up? Did you have both your parents? I have both my parents. Um, we had money. Um, we lived in my... Gra- uh, when my grandparents got sick, we moved into their house, which... It's like a four-story house, like full attic, ba- you know, full covered yeah. basement, pantry. I went to private school. And then um, my grandmother got sick. My dad lost his, like, really sick. Like, she had a stroke. And my dad lost his job. And then everything started to fall apart from there. We lost all our money. Every- oh, you muted yourself. Alicia, Allie, I mean, you muted yourself. There you go. Sounds like you're back. Yeah. Did I cut out? Yeah, no, you muted yourself. It's okay. Keep going. Oh, okay. Um. Well, I mean, after after we lost everything and we moved to Knoxville, that was like a huge culture shock because, you know, things are a lot different here socially yeah. and and style-wise and stuff like that. So I was like, I was really lonely when I first moved here. And of course, you know, going from having all your material needs met to having, you know, having to struggle, like, was which was something my parents really never got used to. Um, I grew up with a motherhood mental illness. Like I spent a lot of time alone as a child. Um, I had two brothers that I dedicated myself to taking care of from the age of four on. And, uh, like, I was just always, you know, always felt alone. So I always wanted to be liked, you know, that was like a huge thing for me is like, I really wanted people to like me. So I did anything I could to make myself of service. You know, I felt like I was like a tool, you know, here I am for you to use me. And, you know, that. You, you, and really it's something my sponsor helped me with is like, you weren't trying to be of service to them. You were trying to make yourself useful though. So they wouldn't leave you. You were trying to make yourself useful for you so that I could find 
confident because I thought by doing these things and making myself available to these people who really like, you know, a lot of them really didn't care about me. You know, I would be useful so that they would never leave me because, you know, even though I had this family and everything like that, there was very little time. I felt very much like an outsider. And um, then when I was like 19 um, was when I had my first brush with drug use and it started with marijuana. Um, I mean, I drank before then. How but was nothing- your, your first time you say you started with marijuana. Who was the yeah. first person you ever smoked with? Uh, it was, uh, my best friend, God rest her soul. Um, she, it was my 19th birthday. She took me to Waffle House. (laughs) She got a Boston cream pie, like one of those slices of Boston cream pie that they have. Yeah. Yeah. And she tried to fit 19 candles in it. (laughs) Like, I'm serious. Like she went off. She tried her best. And then I told her, she was like, so like, what do you do to have fun? And I was like, I don't know, like hang out with people. Like we go uh, playing hide and go seek in the cemetery sometimes and, you know, find all sorts of weird places to explore. And she was all like, but like, what do you do to have fun? And I was like, I was like, I've, I've drank a few beers before. And she's like, have you ever smoked weed? And I was like, no, I've never smoked weed. And she broke her neck to find me a blunt <laughs> like took me this uh guy from el salvador's house and and like just smoked me out like she was like it's your birthday you should party and you know after that it was just like you know weed alcohol was did you like huge, it like i did like i was sitting there like I was like blazed out watching my hand move. Okay, dude. Like I was so freaking stoned. I had the best sleep of my life that night. <laughs> like, what did you, so that's what you like you liked about uh, did did you get like euphoric? I did get euphoric, yeah. I got like super, super happy. <laughs> I was hugging everybody by the end of the night, you know, just happy to be alive. Um but I really that's first- not- I remember my first time I drank a ton of water. I had such cotton mouth. That's one thing I remember. It was terrible yeah. cotton. And I had never smoked before, so I didn't know about it. So I was yeah. drinking, like, out of the pitcher. I remember we were at IHOP, and I was just chugging water down. You just feel your mouth smack together. Yeah. Do that thing. Lord, like, marijuana has been, like, an in and out factor in my career of addiction, I guess you could say. Um, but really what, what really brought my self-destructive tendency out was alcohol. Uh, cause like when I was 17, I got into a car accident and it broke my back. And before that I had planned to dance cause I'd been dancing ever since I was seven years old and I wanted to continue dancing. And that was not possible after that car accident. But my friend had a band and I can't sing. I can't play an instrument, but I could put a drum kit together in like under a minute. So he's like, I need roadies. And, you know, the crew gets free drinks. So I was like, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> so we went all over, like, you know, all over East Tennessee and put on, you know, they put on shows and stuff like that. And that's really when I like launched into drinking. 
And then I, you know, my son's father, that's when I met him. And, you know, he ended up like, I ended up having a miscarriage with him. Oh, and um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. Like it's, it's happened. Um, you know, and uh, he cheated on me in response. Oh my God. Yeah. So then like, you know, I got with, you know, like me and my friend, my friend Grant, who is like just one of the best, most eccentric people in the world, just like took me for a summer out, you know, to Maryville where he lived. And, you know, a lot of people put down like, I'm married to Juggalo, okay? The ICP community. A lot of people put those people down, call them white trash. I What's have ICP? Never... I insane clown posse. Oh, it's like, okay. Yeah. Like they like, and they were. I've never been safer than I was with those people. Insane Clown Posse isn't that a band that has like twenty people in it? Like it's no, it's it's Jay and Shaggy, but Psychopathic has like twenty people in it. Like it's uh Dark Lotus uh that was with Twisted and Boondocks and a couple other people. Like, I'm not, like, my husband's, like, a ride-or-die fan. I'm, I like music, but, like, I was there at those parties to drink, and they were there, and the people that were there kept me safe, kept me from making, <laughs> like, really bad mistakes. In fact, um, one night, we, uh, we decided we had a, a friend of mine's were in a rap group, and we were promoting them. So we had a bunch of people from different bands, different, you know, rap groups in East Tennessee and, you know, basically the Eastern part of the, you know, the Eastern part of the, just, you know, the Eastern part of the South, right? Like we had like people from Atlanta and Georgia, you know, areas and Virginia come down and we did it like a, something we called the Jester's Ball. And my, you know, my son's father, who well at this point he wasn't my son's father. Hmm. Um, this point he was just the guy who cheated on me. Brought the girl who cheated on me to the jester's ball, and left her there. And so I ended up babysitting her like the whole night because she got way too drunk. Oh no! <laughs> and so like that was that was a pretty interesting night. But um, then like you know. I mean, Grant, you know, because we'd hang out all summer, tried dating, and it didn't work out. And uh, my son's father uh, found out that I'd been dating someone else and decided he was unhappy with the girl he cheated on me with. And we got back together, and all my friends were like, this is a bad idea. This is a terrible idea. Don't do this. And it, it led me to my now if two or more people see it rule like if more than two people tell you that it's a bad idea it's probably a bad idea like don't that's a great do it rule. that's a great yeah. rule <laughs> like if you uh, like you go to like three friends and the third one's like yeah go for it then listen to the other two but um we got together and um i got pregnant and he started drinking much more heavily cuz he was drinking for two um and just a lot of destructive behavior almost ended up homeless and pregnant 
And uh, finally, we got a place, and he just changed. How so? You know? Like, he got angry. He got violent. He got mean. Um, Was there a reason for that? I mean, he said that I got pregnant on purpose. That this was just uh, an angle to trap him. And, uh, you know, I also, like, you know, I had postpartum depression. And he didn't know how to deal with that. He started cheating again. And I started getting upset about the fact that he was cheating and calling him out on it. He didn't like that either. And so when my son was about six months old, um, like we parted ways in a very violent fashion. And um, what do you mean by very violent fashion? We had like a knockdown drag out fight. And then I left. Did you get hurt? Um, I had like I was covering bruises and my dad saw it and he was, got very angry as any father would. Um later on, you know, like and then like a week after I left him and I had my son, um, I moved in with my parents for a little while and then my dad was like, Look, go, uh, we just can't handle like a baby in the house. So you're gonna have to find someplace else to go. <laughs> and I was like, Okay. Um, so I moved in with a friend of mine and I lived under her stairs on a love seat with my son's crib right beside me until I could afford, you know, at least half the rent and a roommate. So I moved out and it was just me and my son for like a long time and I continued to drink and I didn't really get into hard drugs until Lisa popped back up in my life and introduced me to Roxy's. Who's Lisa? Uh, that was my best friend, the one who got oh. me smoking weed. She, she like, and after Roxy's turned to morphine, morphine turned to more pain pills. And my husband, or he was my best friend at the time, like, he was just like, you know, you're going, you know, she's she's not really being your friend right now. Cause she ended up ripping me off for like $700. Wow. Yeah. Like my parent, I had a joint account with my parents and she got a hold of my debit card and I didn't know this. And like my husband told me about what was going on and I realized she wasn't, you know, really the best, like the best way to describe her is that, she could be a good person. She and I loved her very much, but when addiction got a hold of her, she she could not be a good person. She just had no control over herself whenever she was sick or she needed something. Doesn't it suck how much people change sometimes when when they're yeah. using? Like she would be the person that I could call like in the middle of the night and just bitch about whatever. And you know, we would spend hours just, like, hanging out in her room, watching, like, old TV and talking about everything. And then if she was sick or if she was just itching for a buzz, she was a snake. She ended up trying to get clean after, like, I stopped hanging out with her after, like, my husband woke me up to what was going on with her and found out like she she's she tried to call me one night 
to pay on her electric bill. And I called him and I was like, it just seems a little sketchy because she keeps changing her story. He's like, yeah, her electric bill is paid. She has LIHEAP. LIHEAP is a local thing we have around here to help you with your electric bill. They pay your electric bill for like three months and get you caught up. And he's like, she doesn't need that $60 for electric bill. You just, you got to cut her off money wise. And I did. And uh, I, you know, for a minute there, I like, I thought it woke her up because like she started going to online school. She said she'd started like, she'd stopped doing drugs and she started doing really well. And then one day I'm at work and my husband comes by and, you know, I'd, I'd, he was actually going to a funeral that day for another friend of ours. Um, and, uh, who was murdered and, uh, you know, I, I gave him a hug and everything like that. And I said, I couldn't hold, get a hold of Lisa. And he's like, well, I'll try calling her too. And, you know, you just let me know. And then I started getting, seeing all these things online about her, you know, being dead. And I was like, guys, that's not funny. It's April 1st. That's, that's a horrible joke. And, um, Finally, a friend of mine that I really trusted, um, that had never lied to me, and I knew not to be like a practical joker, uh, called me and she was like, yeah, it's true. She is dead. They found her over, you know, overdose with a needle in her arm. She's 29. So young. Yeah, didn't make it to 30. And, you know, I think after that, like, you know, it's it's not like I stopped doing pills or anything like that, because actually that was like my husband's family business. Like they all sell pills. Selling pills, uh, whatever, like basically whatever he they could get their hands on at the time. Like con artists, thieves, drug dealers. Not everybody in his family is like that. In fact, like there's a lot of people in his family that are upstanding people, but you know, the ones that I was close to at the time, um, like pills led to heroin, heroin led to meth, started doing cocaine and crack. How old was and the first time, how old was the first time you did like a really hard drug like heroin or when was the first heroin, time you used a needle? I never used a needle. Oh, okay. You snorted? I snorted every, everything went up my nose. Like everybody, you know, when they hear that I was a heroin user, they're all like, oh my God, I thought you hated needles. And I was like, I do hate needles, but my nose, I don't mind destroying that, yeah. you know, and like it got really bad because, you know, and I, I thought that I was functioning. I, I lied to myself and told me I was, told myself I was functioning because, you know, by, the time heroin became involved, like me and my husband had, had our daughter and my son was like seven years old and, you know, the kids never missed a doctor's appointment, never missed school. The house was always clean. And I thought that was enough, you know, to say to myself like, oh, well, I'm doing fine. I keep a job. I, you know, my kids are doing well. You know, I just, I just have this little habit, you know? And then finally, someone uh, wised up to what was going on in our house. 
well, actually it wasn't so much that it was a friend of ours, uh, got mad at us and, um, his girlfriend called CPS on us and our kids were taken away. And, you know, we try, you know, we both went to rehab. Um, but when I came back from rehab, like, you know, we kind of went like a week apart. So we weren't there at the same time. And when I got back from rehab, you know, we had this friend of ours house sitting for us because when we moved into the apartment building that we were living in, our neighbor was not the most sane person and kept saying that we were plotting to kill him, but he was going to get us first. And even though I'd gone to management about him and everything like that, they, they believed him over us. I don't know why. Um, I suspect because he'd been there longer. But I had this friend watching my house. Well, like, she asked if she could stay the night, one more night when I get back. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, I'm tired. I just want to go to sleep. So I go, you know, I go to sleep. And next morning I get woken up to the cops at my door. And I'm like, okay, like, what's going on, officer? How can I be of service to you? Like, what's going on? And they tell me that the woman who'd been house-sitting for me has a warrant. And they have to come into my house right then and get her. And so I complied, everything like that. I let her go. They found a hundred pounds of meth in the room she was staying in. Did you know it was there? I didn't know it was there. Like, I had no idea. Like, I knew she dabbled in selling every now and then, but I thought her to be a trustworthy. She was recommended by a friend of a friend. Uh, but, you know, told her she was a trustworthy person and everything like that. And then, you know, like, the police came and, like, I, I called my management office. I told them, I was like, the police have been here. Someone was watching my house while I was in rehab. I'm just trying to get better. Like, I, I, I will take a drug test. I've not done anything. And, you know, at first, you know, everything was fine. They were like, thank you for reporting this. And, you know, we believe you. But then a week later, I got an eviction notice. And then we went to court and they told us that it would be a while before we could see our kids unsupervised. And then I was in an IOP program and my counselor accused me of still using, even though I like, I passed drug tests and everything and he accused me of still using because, and transportation stopped picking me up so I couldn't even fight it. I tried fighting my eviction, that didn't work out. And before I knew it, like I just gave up. Like I just hit bottom and I went right back out and started using again. My house very quickly became a trap house. I had people living in my house that I didn't know who they were or where they came from or how they even got in my house. Um, some mornings I wake up and like half of my shit would be missing. And some mornings I would wake up and not know who was in my driveway or like why my front door was open. Or all the cabinets in my kitchen were open. And who was passed out on my table? Like, it just... And it kept going on and on and on like that. And finally, 
my husband and I turned to each other one night and was like, we can't live like this anymore. And we just, we knew we were getting evicted soon anyway, and that we would have to get out soon. So we packed some stuff and we took off from the apartment and went and lived with his mom, which we thought would be better. We thought it'd be a fresh start, but it wasn't. Yeah, everything was fine for a minute. You know, we started white knuckling it again. I got a good job. And, you know, he started going back to the doctor because my husband is a uh, type two diabetic. He's insulin dependent. And, you know, everything started to improve a little bit, you know. And then uh, my mother-in-law got hooked on crack again. And suddenly, like, my money became her money. And everything was to keep the peace. She would get fronts from drug dealers. And then she would tell them that I, I was the one she was getting fronts for. And I was getting, like, hit in the parking lot by people I didn't even know. And so eventually, like, again, I said, fuck it. Like, you know, finally I'd gotten off of unsupervised visits. I was having my kids for the weekend. But everything, every time my kids would come over for the weekend, if I didn't make her happy, then she would make our weekend with our kids hell. So it was just like, I just said, fuck it. I shouldn't have said fuck it, but I did. Until finally, like, we ran from that place, too. We ended up at the homeless shelter. And um, I got my shoes stolen. I got enough, a lot of other stuff. Gesundheit, by the way. Thank Thanks, you. You're <laughs> welcome. Um, but, you know, then we were at the homeless shelter. And we were still partying and stuff like that. We had a hotel room one night. And we partied all night. And then... You know, in the middle of the night, Stephen woke up and, like, his foot was green. His foot was what? Green. Oh, my gosh. The infection in his foot had gotten way too bad. So we were like, okay, we're going to go to the hospital. And um, took uh, $30 that we could have used for food at the hospital. And we bought our last sack of heroin. And uh, we're like, okay, we'll just do it in the bathroom. Okay, like, I'll go in the bathroom and do mine. You go in the bathroom and do yours. And so I went in there to do mine, and I died. Uh, like, my husband was up there at the bus station. He was like, okay, she'll just come back upstairs and meet me, right? And he waited there for the bus, and he waited until the bus left. And then he came downstairs, and... You know, didn't see me come out of the bathroom or anything. Waited there by the bathroom for a little bit. And then realized something was wrong. So he snuck into the bathroom and he found me dead on the toilet seat in the bus station. And he pulled me down from toilet seat, pulled my pants back up. He started doing chest compression, started doing a sternum rub, trying to get my heart started. My breathing had stopped. My heart had stopped. I was unresponsive. So we, we figured it was like I was gone for at least 10 minutes, if not more. Could I ask what happened? Because I always wanted to ask somebody firsthand, that firsthand experience. Like, because somebody once said, and I get this, is a lot mm -hmm. of people see a light, but they believe that's your brain trying to use all its available resources to just, I don't know, not die. And then that's what happens. Well, I found myself if. I, I found what desperation really feels like, like the true 
meaning of cold and desperation. I found myself in a dark place, held down with no speech. I knew there were other people there, but I knew that they had long given up. I was in darkness and cold. And I just thought to myself, like, I, if I get out of this, or if I can just live again, I will not take for granted another day. And that's when, like, I saw the light of day come and I shot up in the ambulance. And I don't know if, like, the ambulance workers were doing something or if it was God. I feel like it was God. Because I don't think hell is fire and brimstone. I think hell is true darkness and desperation. And that's where I was. You know, it was just completely just gone from this world. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothingness and cold and no anger or anything, but pure guilt and self and you know self-loathing and dep- most sad you've ever felt. Because there you knew there was nothing. There's absolute nothing. So I woke up and even though like hospitals treat addicts coming back from an overdose like complete shit, by the way, like I had thrown up in this bucket to the point where it was almost overflowing and they wouldn't take it away from me. They kept me in the hallway all night and I had to like when I finally could eat, I had to like beg for food. But finally, like the navigators, uh, actually what I plan on going into when I get my peer certification, uh, came to, came and found me and they brought my boss and they were like, you have to tell him what happened. And I was like, cause they were like, we can tell him, but if you tell him face to face what happened, we can try and get you help. So, cause I work at a hospital in the dietary department and how weird how like just terrible is it to one overdose and die and see exactly where you're going exactly where where your misdeeds have led you and then wake up grateful to be alive but also like just knowing this is where everything has led you but at the same time like as uncomfortable and disgusted I was by myself in that moment, because I was in dirty clothes. Like that morning, I, you know, like I had gotten my period, which had stopped while I was dead. But then, like, when I, everything like just restarted like 10 times worse. I was thrown up all night and then my boss came and saw me. I puked all over me. I was bleeding everywhere. I was just disgusting. And he's like, what happened? And I was like, I, I went back out and I OD'd and I need help and I don't want to lose my job. And he was like, look, if you get help, your I will protect your job. Your job will be here when you get back. We'll just put you on like FMLA. And I was like, thank you. You know, I'll do whatever they tell me to do. What is what, FMLA? Uh, like it's like medical leave. Okay. You know, like it's not paid or anything, but 
it ensures that you know you your spot will not be taken okay cool that's great yeah so i went to rehab and i kept my promise like i did whatever they suggested to do like they they want if they wanted me to like stand on my head and you know say the national anthem i would stand on my head and say the national anthem i committed <clears throat> and i think it was because this time it wasn't to get my kids back it wasn't to get a place it wasn't for anything except for the fact that i was tired of being miserable and i would i didn't want to die i was tired of going out at two in the morning to walk like four miles to a drug dealer's house i was tired of getting beat up i was tired of meeting them into dangerous situations i was tired of being under people's thumb and so it was just it was time to surrender and, you know, like, whenever you start to do the right thing, that's when they say the devil starts fucking with you, you know? like, I, And uh, the day I got to rehab, my husband did make it to the hospital, but he had to, um, he, he was in orthopedic part, department. They told him that his leg could not be saved, and they had to amputate it. So I found out the day I, I got to rehab that they were amputating his leg and I wanted to be there for him. But luckily I have a really good partner and he was like, no, you need to do this. You need to be there. And luckily, like it took him six months, but he finally followed me into recovery. And when the people at rehab told me to go to a halfway house, I went to a halfway house. And that was really scary i'm not like i'm very much a tomboy i don't get along with other women you know early on in my life like i had a very strained relationship with my mother until like i got i became an adult and so then next thing i know like i'm around all these other women and after a few months in recovery they're coming to me for advice and all this time, I had thought, like, all these people who had more recovery than I had, like, just do it all. But then when I realized, like, people were coming to me, and I didn't know shit, I just knew what worked for me. <laughs> like, then it was like, oh, okay, well, I did this. This might help. This is what other people have told me to do. Well, that's all we can do is share our experiences. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was all it was, that life became a lot simpler i i got my kids trust back i got my kids back you know i i went from the halfway house to an oxford house and now i'm living in my own house with my husband and my kids i was able to help my parents they they lost their place and so i was able to get them into my place that's great so, I mean, honestly, I think this whole story is just about, you know, wanting to live. And you can't live for anybody else. You just got to live for yourself. I couldn't say anything more true than that. Yeah. Because that's the one thing I used to be that way, like where I was, I thought I was living for other people. Like, I got to take care of this person, I got to take care of that person. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I, I, I was a mess. The yeah, person that, the person that needed taken care of was me. Exactly. Like, 
you can't you can't pour from an empty cup and all those other nice cliches we like to say in the rooms yeah you know <laughs> like but it's true like honestly like when we first moved in here I had not been to a meeting in like two weeks and I started to get like I tell my sponsors like getting itchy like I start just like snapping at people and stuff like that and so I finally reached out to a friend and I was like I need to get to a meeting get me to a meeting as soon as possible and she did and honestly finding this community like never feeling like you fit in anywhere and then like finding the fellowship of NA has been the most amazing part of my recovery like I have literally found a family within my own like I have found a family an extended family that I never thought I had because I can't even say like outside my family because they are my family like my husband's sponsor my kids call him uncle and you know my sponsor like my kids love her um all the people that we've met in recovery have become uncles honorary uncles or aunts and like we go to we go to conventions we go into go to camp outs we have parties like my hunger is actually setting something up for April 1st and I'm getting people to do like charity haircuts and stuff like that and like offering you know just kind of like quirky stuff outside the norm just to get more people to come out to our group yeah and I mean it's honestly I don't know why I kept myself from being happy for so long like it's almost like I didn't think I deserved it like I like I can't be happy unless I make this person happy or I can't be happy unless everybody else is happy it's or kind I can't of like be a happy. codependency issue yeah yeah that that's actually like probably you know I know like I should probably be doing self like promotion or anything like that but uh reinventing your life was a very good book uh that I found in rehab and taught me about the schema of codependency and how I have a lot of codependency. You know, I it was really hard, um, especially when my husband was still using and I had found recovery to cut him off uh, monetarily. Cause you know, I love, you know, I loved him and I wanted him to do well. Um, luckily I got some good advice saying, you know, you think you're helping him, you're helping him into the grave. You got, you got to stop sending him money. Tell him I will buy you food, I will buy you clothes, but I will not give you any more money. And luckily, that's what led him to get get into detox. Um, although he has the worst luck ever, I'm going to say, because once he got to detox, he found out he had COVID. Uh, yeah. No good. And so, like... And between detox and going to rehab, he had to um, he had to like go and stay somewhere else in quarantine for a week before he could go to rehab. Where did he quarantine? He quarantined in like our church. Luckily, helped out with a hotel. Okay, and cool. people were constantly like bringing him food and stuff like that, checking on him. So he was okay. And then, like, he got into, a, he got into, like, the sister rehab that I was at. Which, you know, after talking to a friend, a couple of my friends who work in recovery, like, 
he tried to be all like, well, like, we were the ghetto of your rehab, blah, blah, blah. Y'all bougie. And like one of my friends who also works in recovery is like, no, no, they are just as bougie as he has yours. You know, he has no, he has no dog in that fight. Yeah. So how long have you been sober now? Um, I will have two years in March. Oh, me too. I have March. March for me will be three years. Uh, what's your date? Am I, mine's March 11th. Oh, mine's the 10th. Nice. Yeah. March 10th, 2020. Oh, that's so cool. And yeah. getting, and getting, uh, clean in fucking COVID season. That must've been hard. Yes. Cause I was all by myself. So my story quick, real quick was I was in a rehab for the first time ever. I was mm -hmm. there about seven or eight days when COVID broke out. And I said, I don't know what a quarantine is like, and I don't want to be stuck here for months. So I was yeah. like, I was like, if I'm going to get stuck anywhere, I'm going home out. And the day I left, the next day, they announced the quarantine. Oh, my so, God. So there were no meetings. There were no friends. There was no family. It was me by myself. Mm -hmm. I came home to a bottle of 90 Klonopin. Oh, God. They were prescribed to me. I used to get three months worth in one shot. And yeah. I ended up flushing it down the toilet. Well, good for you. Yeah. That I, was super hard. It was. Because I said to myself, I could pull this off because I'm bipolar. I could probably still take them and not be an addict. But then I was like, yeah. you just detoxed from it. I was like, well, yeah. I, I was like, why the hell would you go back? So I never, I've, I've never really thought about using drugs that much. Yeah, like, well, I mean, for me, you know, like, what, what happened with me is that, like, my drinking led me to getting raped. Oh, and, sorry to hear that. and when I got raped, I ended up getting pregnant. And instead of getting, you know, terminating the pregnancy, I decided to find um, someone to adopt the baby. And I found, a like, my... Oh, my obstetrician, who is just an amazing man, uh, helped me find an adoption lawyer and introduced me to this wonderful woman um, who honestly is just one of my heroes. Um, and I let her adopt the child. Um, but after that, alcohol just brought up bad feelings, but I still didn't like myself. So, you know, I had to find other ways to escape. Yeah. Just not alcohol. But so there's got, always there's always something. Yeah, you've got quite the story. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that you're sober now because that's all that matters, right? Oh yeah. And I'm I'm so much happier now. Like I I have amazing friends. Um I've buffed up my comic book collection very well. <laughs> um me and my husband finally have a room together again which is great you know like i married my best friend that's what it's supposed I, to be that's great yeah like honestly i could not imagine spending the rest of my life with anybody else you know we were best friends before we got together and he's helped raise my son um he's a great father to our daughter um and with his story like is pretty amazing too. He is now like a big part of an app developing company. Went from living on the street to becoming the right hand of the boss in an app developing company. It's quite, that's amazing.
I mean, yeah. that's great. I, I, there's really nothing I could say to that because it shows the uh, what's the word? I don't want I don't want to say courage because it sounds corny, but show something <laughs> that people like us we can go mm -hmm. like you said from living on the streets to these high end corporate jobs because it's not that we don't have the ability; it's that we're in a shitty situation and we don't know how to get out. Exactly. Also, change is scary for every addict. Like yeah. you just, it's not that it's because it's not that you like being miserable. It's just that you know what's going to happen. You can control it somehow. Like you can sit there and you can be like, "Well, yeah, I'm miserable, but I, at least I know what tomorrow is going to be like." Yeah, you know, you maybe you don't consciously say that, but you you know that's what you're doing. Yeah. You know, like I don't know if. You know, if I go out there and I try to find happiness, if it'll actually be out there. So why try? You know? And now, you know, life is pretty simple. I find that if I just do simple things every day that eventually life gets a little bit better. So I have one last question for you before we get out of here. Let me ask okay. you this. Do you have any tips or tricks for people that are watching and listening? Uh, okay. Here's some. Uh, every morning, I make myself read the Just for Today. And I make myself take 10 minutes for myself. And I meditate, whether that's meditation or prayer or just listening to your favorite song. I make sure to do one thing for my recovery every day. Like... For some, for some of my sponsees, I tell them like, especially those who are hurting with and having trouble loving themselves. Like one of my sponsees, I gave her this assignment recently. I told her, look in the mirror every day and apologize to yourself. Tell yourself, I'm sorry I hurt you. Because you know who you hurt the most in, in addiction? You hurt yourself. It was something that I had to do at the beginning of my addiction is I would look at myself in the mirror and I would tell myself, I'm so sorry I hurt you. I am so sorry I did this to you. And I will never stop trying to make this up to you. And I would tell myself I love myself. And doing that every day, making sure I had, like I may be busy all day long, but if I take 10 minutes for myself every day, I find that I, I get through the day a lot better. Just simple things. That's great. I mean, which well, that's good advice. One thing at a time. Yeah, just one thing at a time. Like, but make sure to just take at least five minutes for yourself to take a breath. Like I tell some people, like, luckily I work in a hospital and we have a lot of elevators. So every now and then I scream to one. <laughs> Especially if the day gets like really hectic. Like we had about we had over six hundred patients last week. Oh wow. And we had staff that we had to feed. So it it gets a little hectic. So every now and then I take five minutes to scream in an elevator helps. <laughs> All right. Did you have anything else you want to add in? I I can't I can't really think of anything, but I, I just wanna say like if you have the chance to save yourself. Don't worry about anybody else. Everything else will take care of itself. The world has a way of moving on. Okay. And everything in its time. 
But if you have a chance to save yourself, take it. Don't worry about anything else. Just save yourself. You know, you can't take that life raft and take anybody with you. It's about carrying the message, not carrying the addict. Yes. All right. So thank you so much for doing the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. How do you feel right now? I, I feel I feel pretty good. Um, I'm looking at the time. Like I have an hour till I pick up my daughter from school. So I'm going to unpack some more boxes. It's taken me over a month to unpack most of the boxes. I didn't yeah, realize I, I, know, I know the feeling with moving. I moved recently. I was, I hate moving. Yeah. I, I, the biggest thing is like realizing you pack stuff that you don't really need, but at the time it seems so important. Yeah. All right. So do me a favor and sit tight. Going to do our little sales pitch for the group. And for everyone watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like, please. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. We do that weekly. You can also check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, TikTok, Instagram. You name it, we're on it. Also, check out our website. It's got a lot of free resources and literature, and you can find it at www.addicts-anonymous.com. Like I said, there's plenty of free stuff there for you to check out. And the last thing is hopefully by the end, the mid to end of next month, we should have a book out, Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. It's a collection of essays that I've written, as well as a lot of people's per firsthand stories and experiences with their addiction. So that's all we have for today. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And until next time.